Hi, I'm Dr. Daniel Golshevsky, paediatrician and father of three. Welcome to my summer series of Dr. Golly and the experts. Guys, I hope you've enjoyed the summer series so far and that you're feeling relaxed and ready for what 2024 has to offer. Before we get back to some brand new episodes for season two, the fourth and final episode in this summer series features Joe Scully and her best friend and surrogate, Georgia Barnes. This is the story of how, together, they were able to make Joe's dream of becoming a mother come true. I hope you are as moved by this story as I was. I start by asking Joe to tell us about her long and complicated fertility journey before she decided to go down the road of surrogacy. Look, I've had challenges um, with my reproductive parts, for want of a better term, my entire life. Uh, I'm 45 years old and, and these challenges have been happening since I was 13. Um, and so, you know, I think by the time I got to a place where having children was actually on the cards and a real possibility, um, I we knew straight away that we were going to need some intervention. Um, ultimately, my list and well, laundry list of, of complications and diagnoses and conditions, et cetera, would just, it was just too long to overcome. And effectively, when we got to IVF and egg retrievals and fertilization, you know, it just didn't really work that well. Um, I think over five rounds, we collected about 40 eggs. And of those 40 eggs, we got one embryo that was viable and tested, quote unquote, normal. Um, and I immediately knew when we got that test result that he was, that the embryo was normal. I immediately knew that I was not the the person for this job. And your background, I mean, we can't minimise the position you held, mm. extremely, the most senior in an enormous company. Do you feel like your work and, as you said, your work brain influence your decisions to just move fast, make decisions, move on to the next one? One million percent, mm. yes. And, you know, I always have found myself in positions, certainly with work that requires a little bit of problem solving, fighting fires, putting things together in a more efficient way, getting to the best result in the quickest way. And that really was the driving force. And I actually was resolved and there that this was our journey and our pathway to our family long before my partner, Nathan, long before my family, long before everyone actually, because of, you know, my 30 year history with my body and myself. And, and then ultimately knowing that my goal was to have a child that was genetically mine. That was actually, um, that's a very touchy subject, but that was actually the most important North Star goal for me. I was sort of willing to sacrifice whatever to get my child that was genetically mine. So, now you talk about Nathan, yeah. your partner. Mm. This is very much a team effort. Mm. Um, how did he feel about it when you first brought it up? Because clearly you'd thought about yeah. it, researched it, yeah. but this was new to him? Yeah. He is. He comes from a family of five boys, so even understanding girls' issues is like... <laughs> <laughs> Like, he was like, I just thought girls got periods and that was it. And then he ended up with me and it was this total, you know, production every month for so for so long. Um, and so he was, to his absolute credit, never, ever closed off to the idea. But he certainly went on a bit of a journey of like, oh, okay. And then once it got started to get real, um, he certainly probably dipped out 
of it being something that he wanted to do because he got quite freaked out about the reality of it all and what that then meant for him. Ultimately, he got there in the end and he's been just an amazing ally and an unbelievably, he's been unbelievably resilient and supportive and not walked away. You know, he's mm. st- stood with it and when many others would, would not. And your um, relationship, I mean, the, the challenges that you two have faced, you've never, you haven't done anything normally. This is, I mean, you were nothing married, normally. separated, met him, what was it, like weeks before you planned to move overseas? Yeah, yep. we did long distance for two years. Um, we've done nothing by the book, um, <laughs> but it's just, it is so great because it just is proof. It's another proof point that this is really meant to be and it's meant to be the way it is because there were so many, There's there's been so many of those um, universal sort of signs and and. and moments that have brought us to to now, which is pretty amazing. And the process, I can only imagine that when you first thought of the idea of surrogacy, it, it's a feeling like, where do I even begin? Was it just literally Google? Yep. Yep. I um, started, the US was f- first. This was pre-COVID. This because you were there at the time? No, nope. It's because I, I was back in Australia, but I just knew that US where commercial sur- surrogacy was legal we would effectively be able to affect an outcome. We just have to throw money at it, right? And so, um, and by money, you know, we're talking quarter of a million dollars once it's all said and done to actually do it commercially so in the explain, US. Explain the process because this is something that many are completely yeah. unfamiliar <clears throat> with. What mm-hmm. is the, the surrogacy process in Australia? Mm-hmm. So the rules in Australia differ from state to state, so I can speak only about Victoria but the rules are that it is 100% altruistic, which means uh, no money or financial benefit must occur between the parties. Um, The birth mother or gestational carrier must have had children and she must have also completed her family. So there's a whole bunch of counselling and work that has to happen prior to transfer, not just medically, but like psychological evaluation. And effectively, it's like vetting by the DHHS to ensure that we're in this for the right reasons and that actually things are going to be okay once the child is here. Georgia, were you, we'll talk about how the two of you met and how we had those initial conversations, but were you aware of these layers of complexity surrounding surrogacy when you entered the picture? No, not at all. I'd actually hadn't really even heard of surrogacy before. So I think in a few movies and things like that, but I knew nothing about it. So yeah, it was all very new to me. So let's let's jump to that now. When did you enter this picture? Because your friendship started way earlier. Our friendship started, our, our partners are best childhood friends from... Um, like they were neighbours, so they've been friends since they were seven years old. So they're both like 46, 47. This is Nathan and Damien. Nathan and Damien. And um, Georgia and I met, obviously, as a result of that brotherhood. It's brotherhood. Like it's not friendship. They're, mm. they're brothers. They get up to all sorts of mission. <laughs> like it's it's brotherhood. <laughs> Beautiful. And yeah. so you were obviously on that infertility journey together with Joe. Yep. Yeah. So... Yeah, and Joe and Nathan came over for lunch, I think one day is mm. how it all sort of started. And I knew that they'd, you know, been trying to have a child and um, I think we just got into some deep conversation and um, after they left, I remember saying to Damien, 
I really want to help them. I really want to see if I can help them have the a baby. The conversations were about surrogacy. Yeah, not not so much about surrogacy. I, I touched on the I, as a literally a throwaway comment. I probably said something like, "I wouldn't be surprised if we actually ended up going down the surrogacy route." Mm. That's it. Moved on. But you weren't trying to plant a seed. Pardon oh, the pun. Oh no, you weren't thinking oh, Georgia would be the surrogate. Oh my goodness. If you could put the furthest thing away from my brain, that would be it at that moment because that was not even in my, was not in my consciousness at all. And you, how old, you, you've got two girls. So Mia's 14 um, and Ivy's 12. How old were they when you started having these thoughts about surrogacy? So it was about three years ago now, about yeah. three years ago. Yeah, so, 20, yeah 2020. Yeah, so. And you were certain you didn't? plan any more children? No, no more children. We um, just feel very privileged that we've got the two girls and life's good. We've got enough time for each other and um, both of them. So they keep us pretty busy. And just ticking through this this thought process, you turned to Damien and you said, I would love to help them. Yeah. Did you already know what that meant? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> he fairly quickly shut it down. Um, and just said to me, you need to really think about this, Georgia. That's amazing, but you need to think about it. I'm quite good at jumping the gun with things and I get an idea in my mind and just want to run with it. So um, I think we went for a month without speaking about it, but during that time I think not a day passed where I didn't listen to a podcast or read up something on the internet and just I really wanted to find out everything I knew about it. So I tried to inform myself as best I could and after about a month, I said to him, I'm still thinking about it and I really still want to do this. And he said, okay. And then from and that moment on, he was completely mo- on board. Uh, completely on board. Well, I mean, I we have to remember, uh, you know, I almost wish the two of them, the brothers, were in this studio as well because mm. I imagine that Damien really wanted to give this gift to his best yeah. mate slash brother. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Um, yeah, he was completely on board and just said, well, let's let Nathan and Joe know. So what did you do? You picked up the phone? <laughs> Gosh, this is... <laughs> Tell we me, I want to know about this conversation. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it sounds, it might sound a bit odd, but we actually sent a text message. Um, I guess I didn't, we didn't really want to put them on the spot and say, hey, you know, this is what we want to do for you in case they had other plans or it wasn't really what they wanted. Um, and I was really excited about it already. So <laughs> I, I guess I didn't want to be shut down. <laughs> but, but you must have been planning elsewhere. So the actual moment when we got the text message, Nathan and I were sitting on our sofa. It was just before the world was starting to get really crazy with the COVID rumblings. It was like J- January, February of 2020 mm-hmm. when everything started to go pear-shaped. And so we were at home I was trying to convince, I was in that moment that I referred to earlier where Nathan was in a bit of a lull about the idea of surrogacy and and not quite sure. And we were, you know, I think we were also assessing our options in Greece. You know, we'd had a couple of conversations. We're just doing our diligence to make sure, you know, just to work out which, which path we would actually take. And we were literally talking about that at that moment on the sofa. I will, I have an eight by 10 memory in my brain. I will never, ever forget it. Um, And Nathan's phone beeped. And he picks up his phone and he goes, oh, my God, oh, my God. And Nathan's like not oh, – it was a lot for him to be so <laughs> sort of reactive to a text and I thought something was wrong. And then he read the text out, which was um, something like, hey, knackers, uh, <laughs> Georgia and I have been thinking about it, but 
to paraphrase it, but like George has been researching and um, we've been thinking about this a lot and we would really love to offer, we think you guys would be amazing parents and um, Georgia would really like to offer to, to be your surrogate. When I tell you that tears, <laughs> and again, remember my point about Nathan, like, you know, one of five boys, not overly emotional, um, tears sprouted out of our face. Him <laughs> like, as well. Oh, yeah, both of us. We were beside ourselves. We were absolutely beside ourselves. It actually gives me goosebumps <sighs> thinking about it because um, it was one of those moments and, and I got some really good advice from a woman who's been down a similar path to me, slightly different but 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 similar. And she said to me, pay attention to the signs. She's like, you are gonna, you're in for the ride of your life and you, this is going to be the rockiest, most full-on road, but you've got to pay attention to the signs. Um, and that piece of advice actually held me in good stead throughout the whole thing because I just tuned in to what was going on and I was so hyper-tuned into everything that I just knew that at that moment it was a sign. Having said that, we weren't, we, my initial reaction was like, oh my gosh, amazing, but short, no. No way. It why? Felt, well, I felt, I'm not sure why. I actually can't, I'm not sure. I think I felt um, nervous or I f- it felt easier or something to just do it commercially. To and outsource. To outsource. Mm. And again, remember um, business brain. I'm like, let's keep it neat, yeah, to clean, tidy, separate. Business and friends. Yep, yep. Um, and that was just my instant, re- despite the tears and the, the unbelievable reaction to this gesture of generosity at that moment, it t- it still took me a while to actually get my head around that this was the right way. But again, I got a so- I I paid attention to the signs, and there was a moment in that in the journey where I knew for sure. Um, How long between the text and the decision to proceed? Um, I have this phenomenon that happens to me where I have all of these brainwaves in the shower. I don't know what it is. I think it's because I'm clear or there's nothing else happening and it's just warm and whatever. But it was just like, this is this is the way forward. This is what we have to do. And it was also quite convenient because at that time as well, the world completely blew up. Our road to America became oh, very compromised. Um, but it wasn't just that. And I want to be really clear about that. It wasn't because we couldn't do America. It was actually because... We just then knew it was the right, mm. like the unit, like we were really looked after. So, I, COVID is a very touchy subject, but for us, it delivered us some incredible circumstances that got us to where we are. So, there's a bit of gratitude in there. Just, and Georgia, given that it was a time of, you know, sort of great unknown, is this serious? Is the world about to end? No one knew what was happening. Did you ever hesitate, doubt, second guess yourself? No, I just. Yeah, I would just ran with it. I just there was no moment that yeah. I that I looked back or no moment that I thought this is not what I want to do. Yeah. And I just it's really important to note that not at one point when it got really hard and it was prolonged and we had setback after setback, at, not at one point did Georgia or Damien ever make us feel bad, ever do that passive aggressive weird mm. thing. Like it actually it, we developed a communication style that was so supportive and kind and lovely and just open. Did you establish almost ground rules for yeah. how it yeah. worked? How, yeah. did, how did you do that? Was this something that you wanted, Georgia, or it we happened s- naturally? We set up a spreadsheet. Yes, of course. <laughs> we did set up a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> Joe and I are both fairly similar in that we're quite OCD, well, I guess. Yeah, we like, bit organised. very organised. Yeah. Well, I'm actually inherently disorganised, so, so therefore the I, I, over, I overcompensate for the, yeah, yeah. 
So everything was on the spreadsheet and we'd had numerous conversations about how we wanted it to look and um, things that, you know, that we wanted out of it, I guess. Um, Even silly things like how, what's the order of who we will tell if this works out? This is all speculative. Like we we weren't there yet, but we were just setting the rules up. Like who would we tell in what order? Um, How does Georgia want to, you know, how do we want to talk about it on social media? Um, we talked about who we wanted in the in the room. In the room. When, you know, for the um, birth. And, and Nathan and Damien were very much part of these conversations. Oh, yeah. 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 We yeah. had a lot of pizza. We had a lot of pizza days at our place just with a notebook and just like literally writing notes and just getting things organised. But I think that the thing that I would love for people to remember if they were ever interested to go down the road of surrogacy is that you ha- you you must put – as an IP, an intended parent, which is me, now an actual parent, you must put the needs, wants, everything of your gestational carrier first. Mm. End of story. Everything, you are second. You have to be comfortable with the fact that you are not the most important person in this dynamic. Yes, you are. Yes, it is your baby. Yes, it is your family at stake. But um, I think that was a big ground rule from the beginning in that it was always about making sure that Georgia was okay and comfortable despite what we felt. So if I was having a bad day and feeling nervous or feeling stressed out or whatever, I would never download on Georgia. Mm. I would download other places. And what about, and I'm getting into the real nitty gritty, but I imagine that had you, let's consider a different universe where you were pregnant and there's certain food in front of you and you think, actually, I won't have that because I'm worried that it might do this or might Mm. do that. How do you sit and watch Georgia do something, eat something, um, go for a run, whatever it might be that you might in the back of your head think, oh, I I, I wouldn't do that. Do you have to just give an enormous amount of trust? One million percent. And I think that's an awesome point. You can't control what Georgia's doing. So don't try. That's part of this, like, you've got to actually put whatever you think to the side. And I legitimately did that as well. Like, I was not, well, I, I had full faith in Georgia and what she was doing and what she needed to do to get through this pregnancy and look after our, our boy. And you you read horror stories of the of gestational carriers doing crazy things like smoking and eating, like, crazy amounts of junk food and all that kind of stuff. I think Georgia's not that person, you know. She, you developed a real penchant for uh, toasties. <laughs> so she was like, "This is how I know that this is like not my baby, and it's a boy because." Oh, you don't had girls, eating, of course. Yeah, I'm like eating like a maniac, and it was just actually really funny. And you know, Georgia's incredibly fit. Um, was a runner, is a runner, is running a marathon in a couple of in a, you know in a, in a month's time. So she was a runner leading up to it. So if she. I also had full faith that if she wanted to do exercise or go for a run or whatever, like it was it was up to Georgia to decide that and you really need to be comfortable and relinquish that control because otherwise it will drive you mm. to distract, like drive you mad. And and I felt quite proud of myself as to I, I had that resolved in my head. And Georgia, what were the emotions travelling in the opposite direction? I think I when I, when we found out that, the pregnancy was viable. Um, even before that, I was so careful, and I just, I just thought to myself, "This has got to work." And so, I think I googled way too much. Um, so, you, were you more nervous with this pregnancy than your own? Yeah, I think so. I think it was just um, I had, you know, quite a lot of anxiety because I just there was only one embryo, 
and so much at stake. It just, although, you know, they said 50-50, this possibly could take a couple of goes. I just thought it's got to work. Surely this has got to work. So I think when I had the embryo transfer, I didn't wash my hair for like a week afterwards. I wore no perfume because <laughs> yes. I heard that the embryo didn't <laughs> like perfume, the smells and, you know, all sorts of stuff. I, I lay on the couch quite a lot and didn't walk upstairs and just, you know, drank pomegranate juice because apparently that's good for it. <laughs> I just tried to do everything I could to, you know, to help make it work. And um, were you working at the time? Yeah, so I was working. I worked full time. But work has been amazing, so I'm very supportive. And when they found out that I was pregnant, they were just amazing. And and treated, from a work point of view, treated you as a regular mum, maternity leave, etc. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I've been very lucky. Yeah. So um, during the pregnancy, um, I managed to pretty much go to work most days. I had a few days where I just couldn't get out of bed, had shocking headaches this time and worked a little bit from home, but mostly in the office. And then after I had him, I took a month off and was encouraged to take longer off from my work. Um, They just said to me, take as long as you like, Georgia, we'll wait for you, which was so lovely. That's amazing. Um, But for me, I needed to get back to work. And I remember leading up to having the baby, I listened to so many podcasts and spoke to other surrogates and they said, take at least two to three months off after you have the baby and don't rush back to work and you need to take time for yourself. But I just needed to get back to work. I needed to feel like me again. And um, obviously it's a very strange feeling to be at home after having a cesarean and Mm not having a baby with you and I needed to feel like I was needed and needed to be kept busy and um, going back to work was probably what helped me the most. Mia and Ivy, were they cesarean deliveries? No. So So who made the choice for so, cesarean? Um, we, had, we had spoken about a cesarean a little bit this time because Jimmy was looking on the rather large side mm-hmm. the whole way through. You are tall, Joe. <laughs> and I certainly... Um, and still large. I'm guessing Nathan's yeah, Nathan's taller than you. T- as, uh, we're both six, six-ish feet, but it's our grandparents that have did really that come cross, through. Did that cross your mind? It did. It did. <laughs> call it a stallion. The, the, <laughs> Joe was like, it's like you're a, oh my goodness, what's those little horses called? Oh, whatever they are, small horse giving birth to a stallion. Like a Shetland pony. Shetland pony, that was it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're like, oh, jeepers, oh, jeepers. And okay. I think Mia was, um, so my eldest Mia was born at 32 weeks. I just went into preterm labour and um, she was absolutely fine, but she was only two kilos, so she was tiny. Right. And then Ivy was 38 weeks and 2.7 kilos. So Jimmy was five weeks early and he was three kilos. Already, so he wow. would have had he gone another five weeks. It could have been a very different story. <laughs> so during the pregnancy, the decision was made to have a season, an elective no, season. So what happened was um, Joe wouldn't. Joe, Joe wouldn't commit. Joe Joe Scroy, Joseph Scroy, the OB, he wouldn't commit early to a Caesar. He was like, "We'll wait and see." He was very. So that's the obstetric point of view. Yeah, the medical point of view, I understand. Mm. But what about the personal point of view? Um, personal point of view, I did, it did cross my mind to have cesarean, but I was also a little bit terrified of that, um, of just having that sort of surgery, I guess. So I wanted to wait and see how big he was actually going to be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I thought that I would end up having him early anyway, because I'd never gone full term. So, 
um, I just, yeah, we would, it was a bit of a waiting game really. Um, and in the end there was no choice. Um, so the decision was taken out of your hands. Yeah, it sure was. It's quite a recovery after a cesarean and you had Mia and Ivy who would, I mean, they're older, but you, you're still a mum. You're still busy and, and doing things and, you know, you're restricted in terms of driving, et cetera. Was that hard? No, I think it was It was actually um, okay. I recovered reasonably well and, yeah, the first few weeks probably were a bit tough not being able to drive, um, but I live in a really nice little community. I've got a lot of friends and family that help. And everyone kind of just came together and did what they did to help us. And um, Joe and Nathan were always there and it, it really wasn't an issue. It's not as uncommon as people think, though. Not at all. Not at all. I have quite a few. I have more than a handful of girlfriends in my immediate and perhaps not so immediate circles that have been through this. Um, some not not. Not in this way. There's more. It's more. They've gone down the road. Um, the As road in of being commerciality. Close yeah, yeah, yeah. They've gone down the road of the commercial angle. But um, you know, I have a girlfriend who was really struggling to get pregnant with their third baby, and so they decided to um, get a gestational carrier in Arizona. They live in California. An Australian girl, um, and hilariously, the ovarian stimulation meds that you have to do for an egg retrieval. Um, she got pregnant. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So she had a um, baby via surrogate and then she had another baby, two boys, and they're sort How of – How far they're, apart? They're, I think they're a month apart, month and a half apart. Do you know what's funny? I was about to tell you reckon, the exact same story and I reckon we're talking about the same person. It, does the name start with a G? It does. Yes. That's wild. <laughs> She's we're talking good. about the same person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we are. She's a very old, good friend of mine. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that just goes to show how yeah. relatively common this is. It is. And I think it's the power of talking about it. And I think part of coming on here and <laughs> part of actually wild. getting to this outcome is like not being ashamed of it. Like fertility is slapped with some serious That's shame. That's why I was so excited when yeah. you contacted me. Yeah. Because these conversations. Make things happen. Correct. Yeah. And it normalises it. It does. And it's like we're not, I'm not here, you know, there's a lot of advocacy. Go, it's a hot topic at the moment. There's a lot of advocacy going on around the topic at the moment in the media. But to be like at the end of the day, like some people are super fertile and other people are just effing not and mm -hmm. I am not. Like, And the story of, of our mutual friend goes yeah. to show the enormous stress it's putting on people yeah. to the point where it's actually stopping them from falling successfully pregnant. Correct. And I think that that emotional toll, I actually feel this is getting a bit woo-woo, but I do think that my physical diagnoses and health scenario for the 35 years of my life probably played a massive part in my um, feelings of like whether I could or couldn't do it. Like mm. I, I really stand by the fact that I probably, I, I geared my brain towards this a long, long time ago and hadn't realised it. And I, um, I've subsequently actually had a hysterectomy last year. Right. Um, because it was just a dodgy shit <laughs> organ that has done nothing but caused me insurmountable grief for such a long time. And it's so crazy because 
I've just been in chronic pain for a really, really long time and literally have not had one scrap of pain since that dodgy organ was taken out of my body. And I think that there's something more than just the physicality of it. I think that there is a a huge emotional emotional brain connection to it all. And yeah, my, my life has, I feel like my life has started in, in, in a way, not just from the, the parenting part, but just from the no pain, no drama in that department, you know, like it was always there and it's now not, and it's just the best. <laughs> and Georgia, how does it feel to have given that to someone? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> like every day I think about it and I, and Joe sends me photos all the time and he's actually my screensaver, which my, <laughs> the girls are the okay. Girls are, are they okay? <laughs> They're absolutely fine. I think, and it's funny, Damien and I always thought we'd have three children and then we had the two girls and we just felt like life was good. And I always, I, I said to Joe, I feel like Jimmy is that third baby that, you know, that we were always going to have, but he's not ours. Mm. So it was always, he was always meant to happen. The girls actually joke and they say, mum, it's like having a brother without the responsibilities. It's like all the good parts. (laughs) Yeah. So they, um, we all have a very special relationship with each other and the girls are very close with Nathan and Joe and, and they just love Jimmy. And even last night, Joe sent me a photo and Ivy said, can you send that to me, (laughs) mum? So I, and she's always showing her friends and it's great. So it's, they're very proud. So just talking about they're very, very proud of their mum. And I think the demonstration, again, of kindness and generosity and really, strength, you know, just yeah. and strength and resilience, like what an incredible lesson for those. Those two girls have had a front seat to something pretty extraordinary and they've been little legends the whole time. Like they kept the secret. They were in on it. They've been in on it from the get-go. That was really important to, to Georgia and Dame. Um, and they just, yeah, shout out to those two because, yeah, I, I, I get a bit, I get a bit choked up talking about them because I think that, you know, it would have been too much for some little girls and little people and they just have been extraordinary and we love them like our own and we we call it like part-time siblings and (laughs) part-time family and we refer to Georgia as as Mama G, um, the other mama, because that's the truth of it. She's not an auntie. He's got 10,000 aunties. He's got so many aunties and all of which love him beyond, beyond. But Georgia's not an auntie. Mm. She's his birth mum. And I think being comfortable in that acknowledgement is really important because I am. I wouldn't have him if it wasn't for her. And she literally is, when you look at medically, she is his birth mum. That's it. Yep. Like that's the fact. And I quite like facts. <laughs> um, and that's what, it, what she is. And so he will always know. So- I'm his mum, but she's also his mum. Let's talk about the moment <laughs> that birth was imminent. Talk me through that day. I well, like that you're already laughing. Oh, wow. <laughs> so three weeks prior to that day at 30, week, uh, 30 weeks, 30 weeks, I went into what I thought was, well, what they thought was labour. Was this, was this a concern of yours during the pregnancy given your previous premature yeah, birth? Yeah, so, and Joe, the obstetrician, knew that. So hyper-diligent was, on that. There was mm. a little bit of talk about putting a stitch in um, because... I've 
an incompetent cervix. So 30 weeks, I was at home, I was in the kitchen in the morning, getting ready for work, getting the girls' lunches ready. And I just felt like I just kept wanting to cross my legs. And I said to Damien, I said, something's not right. I feel like maybe I'm in labour. And obviously being, you know, gone into labour twice before, so I had that same sort of feeling. And I wasn't surprised. I felt very disappointed because I thought, I'm only at 30 weeks and I really wanted to get to 30. 32 was my number because I knew Mia had been born then and I yeah. knew and that. And she was yeah, fine. She yeah. was fine. Mm. She was in hospital for 10 days and she was amazing. So I started to feel a bit stressed. We got in the car, drove to the hospital, went to Freemasons and Joe Scroy came in. Joe and Nathan were actually um, holidaying. <laughs> what? In the furthest <laughs> point from <gasps> Melbourne in Australia, we were in broom? <laughs> like, yeah. So anyway, so we got to the hospital and Joe came in and I don't know if we'd actually called you straight away, but... Um, you called us at about 8am because it was yeah. about 6am in per- well in Western Australia. So they, yeah. so Joe Scroy came in and he did a, um, is it fibronect and the test to see whether I was maybe in labour and it came back fairly positive that I was in labour. So they, because I was only 30 weeks, they put me in an ambulance and took me to the Mercy in case the baby was born. It could be better looked after there Mm -hmm. being so little. So got to the Mercy and pretty much thought I was going to have a baby on that day. So this is quite intense. For those who don't know the names of these hospitals, (laughs) this is moving from a beautiful, relatively small private maternity hospital to a tertiary centre, yep. public centre, which has a neonatal ICU. Yep. That's how concerned Joe was. Yeah. And I was a bit stressed too because I'd had this amazing obstetrician the whole way through and all of a sudden he wasn't coming with me mm. and I was in you have going to hand over to, the care. Yeah. So I got there and they sort of just kept monitoring me. They gave me steroids in case the baby was born, that his lungs would be better developed, which I'd had with Mia as well. So I kind of knew that was happening. Um, Joe and Nathan are scrambling, trying to get a flight. <laughs> I was hysterical on the phone to Qantas. They were so lovely. They just put us on a flight and we just got out of there. So that was possibly one of the worst three or four hours of my life being stuck on that plane. Like we were literally, and again, with the complexity of parentage orders and naming and all that kind of stuff, like we had to have a full plan before we got on the plane. We got the lawyer, we got the family, we got everybody. We're like, could someone could just please make sure you put James Armstrong on the birth certificate, here's his name. Put please put James Peter Armstrong on the birth certificate on, on the on the not birth certificate on the um on the cot card on the cot like name him his name because with surrogacy um it's it's there's no combined learning so people actually just don't know what to do mm. and so you know we we knew that we were able to put his name and name him his name. Um, but there were some instances where people were not able to do that because it was just done incorrectly. So and so you're talking about the um, the scenario where the child's given the birthing parent's name, surname? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then you have to change it by Then you've got to do all and... this. Uh, well, and it's just, it's just a bit more confronting actually. Um, it's just better and easier to sort of have that name from the get-go. He's still not, he's still not legally ours. To be honest, we still don't have the parentage order complete after a year. That's a whole nother story. But, you know, there are all these complexities and there's no combined learning. You know, hospitals are very military. It's it's, it's everyone knows the rules. It's process driven. Whereas with surrogacy, you know, you look at the amount of practitioners and people that have actually been involved in a process like this. 
they, people just literally just don't know what mm. the rules are or the protocols are, so they default to to the. It's a whole new language. You've, whole new language. you've dropped terms here that some people have never heard before. Never heard. Yeah, exactly. And so that is in itself, you know, a dilemma. So we had to have a bit of a plan as to what we were going to do. And so we had, I remember we had Damien, I think we had my mum, and my sister or sisters on the case. So like someone had to be there if he was going to be born and we while weren't going, while we're flying. So like just everybody go. So sorry, back to you. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. I think um, I ended up spending two weeks at the Mercy and probably almost had Jimmy about three or four times oh. during those two weeks um, and eventually it just fizzled out. I was just lucky. And, and you went back home? I went yeah. back home. Ah. I think I was 30, just 32 weeks and I rang Joe and I said, and Joe was with me every day at the hospital. She came in and and looked after me and we had lunch together and, you know, kept me company. Um, And 32 weeks I went home and I felt this huge sigh of relief because I knew that if I'd gone into labour I could go back to Freemasons and I would be with Joe. and um, That was a big deal. And that was a big thing because I'd had both the girls there too, so it was was familiar. It was familiar. And anyway, so I went back home and pretty much begged my work to let me come back. I think they were a bit scared <laughs> that I was going to have the baby at work. So um, after a, couple, a few conversations, they said, that's fine, you can come back. So I went back to work for three weeks and then... So you're 35 weeks now. 35 weeks. It was a Tuesday before the end of term. I work at a school. So I was on my computer and I was looking at my screen and it just started, everything started to look a little bit fuzzy and I felt like I'd gotten a bit swollen. Her feet went in no time. So you had this really crazy swelling, which is obviously not great. Blood pressure went up. Yeah, Yeah. blood pressure went up. Um, I I remember going to the bathroom and I couldn't see, make my face out in the mirror, which is really quite scary. So I came back to my desk and just really quietly called myself an Uber. Um, (laughs) I love how low key you (laughs) are. Amazing. Because I knew that if I told anyone that I was in labour, that which I pretty much I want to know what the Uber driver said. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That I, um, so I called myself an Uber and just walked out to the front of the school and got the Uber up the road to work. She's not human. Yes, I'm <laughs> <just> unbelievable. <laughs> and um, got to the hospital and they put me on the monitor and Jimmy had always been a very active baby. He'd always, he was always much more active than my girls and um, I always knew he was there. There was no doubt that I was pregnant and he was moving around in there. Um, and the movements had changed a lot. So they kept me on the monitor for about two hours and eventually they said to me, you can go home, but we want you to come back tomorrow just for more monitoring. So I went home. I had a shocking sleep. I rang my work and said I won't be in for the rest of the, rest of the term, which was just a couple of days, and I'm just going to work from home. They said that's fine. So Damien dropped me at my car at work the next morning, which was a Wednesday by now, because I couldn't drive to the hospital the day before. I'd caught the Uber. So I jumped in my car. I decided not to go up to my office, which was probably a smart decision, (laughs) and drove to the hospital and um, the midwife put the monitor on and she said to me, oh, so whereabouts do they usually find his heart beat, Georgia? And I said, oh, look, he moves around so much, sometimes it's tricky. And she said, oh, I'm just going to go and get Dr. Joe. And so he came in and he put the monitor on and he just looked at me and he said, Georgia, we're going going to go and have this baby right now. 
And I think I just, my face, I just went into shock. And I picked up my phone, I rang Jo, and I said to her, you need to hurry up, we're going to have a baby right now. And the The conversation words were, sweetheart, you need to come to the hospital. We're having this baby right now. And the feeling of adrenaline that completely took (laughs) over. Where were you at the time? I was at my desk at home working. I was about to get in the shower. So if I had got in the shower, I was would have missed the whole thing. So I get up. Throw my, pick up my keys, lock the door. I don't know what I, I packed a bag, but I didn't bring the bag with me. Like I basically got into my car and flew to Freemasons. I live in in Middle Park, so not not too far. I flew there. I took on roadworks. I was yelling at people. I was like, I've got to get to the hospital. Like I was a crazy person. Found my park, and when I tell you that I was sprinting from my car into labour and delivery. And then had to get into scrubs. I've got like, so I'm six foot tall. I've got size 10 feet. I decided not to take my shoes off and try to get my effing <laughs> sneakers into the scrubs. It's like watching an old Benny Mate, Hill video. It was <laughs> such a debacle. And, they're, and I'm like, they're too small. They're too small. You need an extra large. And so like I've got these scrubs that are so enormous. But um, anyway, I finally took my shoes off and got the scrubs on and then made it into the delivery room. And I was completely oblivious. I think it's important to note at that this time I was oblivious that we were in a bit of trouble. I was like the adrenaline was where the, just the baby's coming. Did you coming. know, Georgia? Oh, I, I knew we were in trouble yeah. Um, and, yeah, just kept thinking, I don't know what's what's going to happen at the moment. They kept the heart rate monitor on. The baby's heart rate was sort of up and down, up and down. I was trying to keep still so that I could have the spinal block but I was shaking because I was nervous and I was cold and I was scared. And Joe came in and I remember she said to me, "Oh my goodness, she was all excited. We're gonna have this baby." I was beside and myself. I couldn't. I was cry- I was crying, but I was crying. I was just. It was just. It, it, I've never felt like that in my life. I don't know if I'll feel the same ever since. Like just the adrenaline and the emotion and everything. I was just quite beside myself, but mm. I was not aware. You, you you were saying to me, I'm so sorry, yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm like, don't worry, you are the best person for this job. Like I'm like, you know, coaching her. But I had. it's important again to note, like we're talking about, she called me at 10.30, he was born by 10.50. So, so we're talking minutes. about 20 minutes. Yeah. We're talking about like microseconds. Not enough time to have a, Not enough a time transfer to even of information. In any way, shape or form. And who's in the room now? Damien? So no, no, Damien. No. So Damien had, dropped, even know. He had dropped me at my car at work. Um, 25 minutes before that and said, see you later, have a great day. And little di- he had no idea that I was Because she called me. I, I, I only had time for one phone call. So I called Jo and <laughs> um, then she came into the room and then very quickly after Jimmy came out and I remember just lying there. So it was just the two of you? Just yeah. the two of us. And, and the full and the crew. <laughs> and the crew. Pediatrician was there? Yep, mm-hmm. John, yep. John Mills. John Mills was there. And what condition was so Jimmy born Jimmy, Jimmy came out and he was crying and Perfect. screaming. Tell me Joe sang a song. Oh, my gosh. And he I was peeking. This is, this is Joe's uh, Peeking up tradition. over the blind to see him. Yeah. And then I remember one of the midwives um, said, she said, oh, my goodness, he looks perfect. Oh. And I just had this huge sigh of relief and nothing else mattered after that. It was just, I, I'll never forget those words. But he was... Um, to talk about Joe for a second, because I think it's really important. He obviously that's his Super Bowl, right? Like that's why you have someone like Joe, or that's why your obstetrician is so important that when things go pear shaped, they can just be. It's just grace under fire, 
and we're talking like fire. He was running, you know, this is all, I'm hearing this secondhand, but, you know, apparently Georgia and Joe ran out of the consulting suites through a sea of women watching Georgia with her top up and the doppel thing mm. on her tummy. So they would have all been stressed out. They ran upstairs. He's basically organising everybody. They called the code there green. There was a code. Oh, it was a code okay. green. Okay, so for people who don't know what a code mm. green is, you drop everything and you run. So for context, just so people understand the time pressure we're talking, um, if I'm in my rooms in pants and shirt mm. and a code green is called, you're not changing into scrubs. Mm-mm. So everyone in theatre is in Especially not in shoes. Oh, correct, <laughs> correct. But this is this is how urgent this yeah. was. So mm. I can't, you know, it's impress no upon listeners enough. We're talking about 30 years of history that came to this moment, mm. a friendship born out of a brotherhood, a, a previous stress that landed you in hospital for two weeks, then this moment where baby's about to arrive and if that whole history isn't enough, we've now got time critical code green where everyone drops everything they're doing and runs Liter- to get this baby Literally out. sprints through the hospital. And, and I think that Joe oh, just makes me, I have such gratitude for Joe because he was, like I said, grace under fire. No one looked at, no one said, looked, there was nothing no one looked at me. No one did anything. They were just eyes on the prize. Joe didn't say a word. He was so precise in what he was doing. But to your point, once everything was fine, he actually, you know, the Carlton theme song, oh, the Simba, relaxed. like happy birthday. Like it was just a joyous moment, but there was no joy at all. And I didn't, upon reflection, I can now kind of feel and remember what that felt like. But there was not joy. It was, we, we are, we, we, it's do or die, literally do or die, life and death. Um. And it does turn out that he just had a very he had a restricted cord, mm. so it wasn't catastrophic in the end. Know but that can actually, arrives. but that can cause if left for too long, that can actually cause, you know, some pretty some pretty nasty outcomes or undesirable outcomes here. So you know, we were just incredibly lucky, and we had the right team. And there was a wonderful. I'm not sure if she was a nurse. I'm not sure what her role was in the room, um, but she grabbed my phone. And that was just the coolest thing because we have we have yeah, so ten thousand photos. photos of this <laughs> whole thing, and it's just magical. Because to your point, it was it was just a mush of time and a mm. mush of of stress. And we've now actually got it all recorded, like, and it's amazing to look at. And I look at it often. So weekly. Jimmy comes out. Who does he get handed to once all the checks have been done? So this was a bit of a situation that I and I, I talked earlier about the collective learning and the speed to which we had to get into this situation. And you know, John Mills being the baby doctor, the the pediatrician um, in the room. I'm not quite sure about this at, for fact, but he wasn't aware of the scenario. He wasn't briefed because there was no time to brief him, right? And so he didn't realise that I was the intended parent and that Georgia was our. In fact, surrogate, I think he may have thought we were like a same-sex Friends couple or, oh, yes, or whatever, yeah. which is totally cool and awesome. Um, and But he he didn't realise and so the baby went to Georgia, which I'm not, I don't, I just don't mind at all, but he didn't realise in that moment, baby went to Georgia, something happened, baby went off to be weighed and then he realised in that moment when I was following and he, someone told him that like I think – I'm putting this together, but I'm pretty sure this was what happened. He was then briefed on the situation and he then was just 
the biggest legend ever. Like he realised he didn't have all the information at the beginning, but then he, once he did, he really made sure that we felt um, amazing. And there's a f- extraordinary photo. It's one of my favourite photos where John is handing me Jimmy. Um, oh, yeah, it's hard to talk about because it's like it's the moment of – it's the moment. I feel like that's my moment. So when he came out, it needed to be George's moment and I feel like – I feel really comfortable and happy that that happened. My moment came after he was weighed and healthy and fine and I literally got – he got like handed to me and it's all on. I've got it. I've got images I can show you. It's quite amazing. I look like a wreck but I – it is such an amazing moment. We've talked in this podcast previously um, with Moana Hope about the aha moments, what she called it. Yeah. She had ahi and she called it the aha uh, moment. Yeah. And I want to know, Georgia, what it was like for you to observe someone else having that aha moment. I think there's one photo that Joe is probably referring to where she thinks she yeah. looks terrible, but it's, yeah. it's, she doesn't. It's an yeah. amazing photo and she's got her hand kind of covering her face a little bit. And it's just like that moment, whenever I look at the photo, it's, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm a mum. Yeah, yeah. And it's just... We, we did it. And did you I feel just, that in oh, that moment? Oh you my God. I'm oh yeah, no, no. It was, it's, it's a lot to think about because I, for a long time, had resolved myself resolved that to myself that it wasn't going to be for me. And I think that, you know, assisted reproductive technology and IVF and all that sort of stuff is a game of loss. It is, unfortunately, it is a really shit game that in, involves a ton of disappointment and a ton of loss. And what you can hope for is that you can actually just persevere through it, that at one point it turns into a win, truly. Um, and so for me, I kept, Georgia was talking about her magic number of 32. In my mind, I was like, if we can get to 28. You're happy. We've still got a viable, we're, we're still yeah. in the game. And I used to, I, this is how I talked. I'm like, we are still in the game because the thing about IVF is that when you fail, you're back at zero and often sometimes before zero because you've got to do all this stuff to get back in the game. You've got to re-qualify to get back into the game. And so in that moment, I mean, my adrenaline and my body, I was having an out-of-body experience. Like I just, it was it was wild. Um, but I still fe- remember how I felt. And I remember when he came to my arms and there's this photo of me just with my hands over my eyes because I'm just literally in disbelief and I'm trying to just dial into what's happening. And I just, our baby made it. It's like he's here after all of that. Um, you know, that he went on a tour of duty, you know, <laughs> started with me into the freezer, stayed in the freezer, went from one provider to another provider, new doctor into another, into another mum, and then ended up back with me. And while you're us. downloading this and living in this moment, are you also one eye on Georgia? I'm one eye on Georgia. On yep. She's still on the table. Um, but I tell you what, the primal nature of a cesarean as a spectator Holy moly. It's intense. Mate, and I think as women we are always, it's just de, it's just devalued. I'll just have a Caesar. You serious? Like they're, it's, mm. it's primal. It's crazy. So um, it was just an extraordinary, it was an extraordinary 26 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like weeks, It felt I like imagine. a lifetime of everything and, yeah, I, I – you couldn't, yeah, one of the greatest, it will be forever the, the greatest day of my life. Another thing we've spoken about on this podcast is the change that happens in the brain of a female when a baby is born. Of this question. We have very clear evidence <laughs> on 
MRI scans that there's a massive surge in the size of the amygdala, amygdala. which is your um, your centre of emotion, your protective centre. It's, it's the activation of your mother bear kind mm-hmm. of instincts. We also know that when dads are very hands-on and very involved and do a lot of the early newborn care, that they too have that same increase, mm. maybe not to the same degree, but they do have those emotion changes. So you don't have to be the physical birth parent mm. in order to achieve those changes. What did you experience? It took a little while for it to really sink in that I was his mum. Were we talking weeks, months? Um, I think probably probably a week. So the mother bear thing, the caring, the nurturing, the I'll do anything, can live off no sleep, hyper aware, hyper diligent, all of that sort of stuff kicked in straight away. But I had to just really overcome. And look, I think that there will always be, there'll be a little bit of imposter syndrome, but apparently that's common for, for all mums, to be honest. So I, yeah, I, I think I felt really, yeah, I, I feel as though we're talking probably a month um, once I got to really spend some time with Jimmy and, and I took some time off and I really got to be with him and really start to raise him and do all that stuff. So And, and logistically, because I, I want people to understand not just the concept of someone else doing the carrying and then someone else doing the newborn raising, mm. I want to know where did you go from theatre? Where did the two of you go in hospital during the postnatal stay? To a um, holding room where we sat and hung out to wait for the epidural to wear off, where we just had Jimmy and Damien and... Joe came in and Nathan was there and we laughed because we've got a photograph of the four of us. Georgia just had a baby. She looks like a supermodel. (laughs) Nathan looks like a bloody Calvin Klein model, like he looks a million dollars, you know. And then there's Damien and I and we look rough. Like I have to tell you, it is hilarious. I love it. It is so funny that the two of us just look like we've gone six rounds and actually Georgia's the one that's had the baby and Nathan's just like turned up. We have to put these photos in the show notes. Yeah, we can. We can. It's just hysterical. Um, But, yeah, we were in there and then we both went to rooms next to each other for the the stay. So on the postnatal ward, you had your room, Georgia, where you were alone? And Jimmy spent all the time with Joe. Yep. He had two days in special care just because he was early, but he was discharged. He graduated from special care after two days and then he was with us. But we were in adjoining, not adjoining rooms, but rooms next door. So we actually, it was such a lovely time. Um, we had, we call it our little staycation. Oh, it's a little staycation. Have, you don't ever have that, your best <laughs> no. friends yeah, with you. Yeah, it was just the best. And it was a very magical time. And because of the Caesar and because of the, the circumstances of, of Jimmy's birth, Georgia had to stay another day in hospital. And the rules, again, to t- touch on the Victorian rules around surrogacy, we can't leave. Jimmy can't leave the hospital without Georgia. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of, you know, statutory declarations and things where Georgia says, I'm okay, like I sign him over to you as a stat deck, as a as a, the first legal document. But Georgia had to stay, so we had to stay. Um, which was completely fine by us because we just had an extra day in hospital and we would have dinner together every night and, you know, wheel around the staff. And it was really, it was it was a magical time. And it was, all the staff, I know whenever I'm involved in surrogacy, it's yeah. just, there's just this air of excitement yeah. and there's this shared um, appreciation yeah. and awe of yeah. the birthing mother. We met some really lovely people. Amazing yeah. people. And I think that they were also incredibly supportive and helpful 
to Georgia because there is a big hormone, like there's a big old dump that happens, you know, mm. and I think that the gravity of what we what nearly happened, I'll never forget, and I think it really hit Georgia kind of all at once. So it was like postpartum, hormone dump, and oh shit, we nearly, this, this baby Jimmy nearly didn't get here. Mm. And speaking of hormone changes, did you express colostrum? Did you feed Jimmy? Did you no, turn off your supply? We talked about all that prior to, <sighs> yeah. I think we decided that if he was born at 30 weeks, then maybe we would do a little bit yeah. just because it was recommended. Um, but when he got to 35 weeks and he well, was three kilos, fine. he was, he looked amazing. So And, and the, yeah. but the suppression meds didn't work. Yeah, so oh. unfortunately they did give me something to suppress my milk and it really didn't work. <laughs> so that was, yeah, that was something else that I was dealing with. Obviously, you know, sore after the cesarean and then having to deal with yeah. my milk coming in, my hormones all over the place. It so was, were you expressing... Not really. Relief. I was trying trying to leave them alone. To not um, encourage. Yeah. <laughs> to not encourage it. Um, I'm not, I'm trying not to be insensitive yeah. laughing, but it, it was mildly funny at the time because we had to, we were like, get cabbage, put all the tricks and obviously, yeah, it was, it was amusing-ish, but obviously very painful for, for yeah. G. And what was the difference in your mind from an emotional point of view? You've held your own child and now you've held a child that you've carried What's the difference between them? Yeah, I think, and I know this might sound a bit strange, but him being a boy really helped me too. I think because I'd had two girls, I felt like he was, he, this was really different. Mm. So immediately it felt like this was not my baby. I knew it wasn't my baby, but I felt like he really wasn't my baby. Because and is that what you told yourself throughout yeah. the pregnancy? This is not my baby. Yeah, I knew, I, I knew that, and I felt very well prepared. I'd done a lot of research and listened to a lot of podcasts and spoken to quite a few surrogates and they said to me, Georgia, when you have the baby, it just won't, it won't be the same as when you had your girls. He won't look the same and it, it will just feel different. And it, and they were right. It just felt different. Were there moments afterwards? Um, oh, look, a couple. When, when, when I left the hospital, I think it took us about an hour to leave. We, I think, it took us both by surprise. We didn't realise how difficult it would be to sort of close the chapter. Oh, of, you can't prepare for that kind of emotional But journey. we just didn't even clock the actual moment of having to say goodbye mm. and separate. We'll take the baby this way, we're now our family, and then you're going to go that way. You've just given birth to a baby and you're going to go that way. And also the end of that little staycation, um, it was really it was tough. I know. Look, see, it, it brings, it, it was really, it was so much tougher than either of us anticipated and particularly for Georgia, which then made it my, for you. I, 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 what, what were yeah. the emotions that you were processing think, at that time? Um, oh, I just think, you know, I just felt like, you know, it had just been the two of us for so long and, mm. and then all of a sudden he was gone. I, I, I just felt a bit empty. I felt empty. I remember, um, when I got home, I think I sat the whole way home in the car and just didn't speak the whole way home. Yeah. I just felt, it just felt weird. Mm. And I walked in the front door and I think I just went straight into the bedroom and hopped into bed and I think I stayed in bed for about three or four days and just cried. I just felt, mm. I just, it just felt weird. And it felt, I felt lost. I felt lonely. I felt empty. Um, I was really happy, obviously, with the outcome and, and you know, my I knew that he wasn't my baby, and I knew that this is how this is what this is what was always going to happen. But 
it's just I think you know. it's important to note that like both of those positions are true and accurate and can occur at exactly the same time. So the the thing about the clinical kind of nature of, you know, commercial surrogacy is that you sort of assume that it's just like transactional and mm. done and over. But the reality is is that, that these these things are happening and it is truly the essence of why like George is not his auntie because she's so much she's more. not, you know. Um and look, no we have no we have no grievances about anything. But like it was it was difficult for us to see and watch Georgia not suffer, but, you know, sort of have to go through these motions um, because, again, we can't do a thing to help her really outside of sending elaborate flowers and (laughs) chocolate. (laughs) You know, there's nothing that we can do to make it go away. And I think um, I'm a helper by nature. I'm a fixer-upper by nature. And, again, that was a big sort of personal development for me where I had to just really sit with it and be cool with the fact that this person had done this enormous thing for us. Let's not forget that you're doing this at a time of great sleep deprivation and mm. learning how to yeah. look after a baby, yeah. which is yeah. really challenging. So I and think, the first person you would normally lean on is your best yeah, friend. Yeah, Did yeah. you feel like you couldn't? Um, a little bit, but also I was so still in the zone of Georgia. I've got to make sure Georgia's okay. So this whole like postpartum fourth trimester, which I think probably fed into me not fully feeling like his full mum because I was actually... I was steadfastly and remained obviously very focused on making sure that Jimmy was fine, but I, in, I, I hadn't fully, I hadn't fully immersed because I was still very conscious and wanted to make sure that Georgia was okay. It was super important for me that it was wasn't like, like I had to make sure that she was fine. She that it, it wasn't over just because he was born. Mm. Like we still had a ways to go. And to be fair. I think we're in a different place now. It's a year later. But, you know, the first couple of months was nothing else mattered other than Jimmy's health and George's health. And as two families, we just ensured that we every single week we saw each other. And it was during winter and we would just literally come over to our house and just sit on the couch and just snack and chat and hang out and, you know, and we still do that. It's our favourite thing to do as two families. But it was very – it wasn't over just because the birth had happened and, mm. it, and that's the, the – um, the nuance of doing it with your friend. I'm really proud of how we have done this. It's one of my, well, it is the greatest thing that we've ever done, but I'm very proud of how we navigated um, pretty crazy territory. Let's move away from the heavy emotional aspect. Let's talk about Jimmy today. How old (laughs) is he? He's one? 11 months, two weeks. Yeah, Almost one. Almost one. And... I want to know your involvement in his first year of life, Georgia. So like Joe was saying before, we probably catch up every few weeks. Um, Joe sends me photos pretty much every day, which I love. Um, so many people I spoke to said that had been surrogates had said, oh, it just gets annoying when they keep sending photos through and there's only so many times you can say, oh, look at him, he looks so cute. <laughs> but for me, I, it's the highlight of my day. Whenever I get a photo, it's just, I just love it. It's just. We're just, we're just extended family. We're just, it's, it's a different. It's, it's more than that. Like you touched on before, you're mm. not mum, but you're not aunt. Mm. There's something in the middle that doesn't yeah. quite have a word. Look, I think the hardest thing for me, which I've spoken to Joe about, is the fact that you know, it will be a while before he'll even know, you know, at the moment I'm just another person that, you know, a face that he sees and a family plays friend. with. And mm. Yeah, so, which is fine. It's probably harder for me um, at the moment 
sometimes to see that because I just, yeah. And I have little moments with him and I'm thinking, oh, I wonder if he remembers. I wonder if he feels any different when he sees me. Do you think that he I don't know. Yes, yes, I do. What makes you think that? Because he is, um, even just this morning, so Georgia came over this morning and he is an incredibly social engaging little guy. We all think he's been here. That's very kind of you. (laughs) Thanks, Golly. Um, He, no, he, you know, he's, he's endearing. He endears people to him. He's very, he looks at you in the eyes. Like he's very, um, he's ace. I will, I will show this to you afterwards. Um, But, you know, he's more inquisitive these days and he's more aware. So whereas it was used to be like blind smiles and blind, oh, awesome person. Great. It's, he's a little bit more discerning. Now, which is pretty funny to watch, um, but Georgia turned up and she hasn't seen him in probably maybe three weeks, four weeks, cause just because of other stuff, just this time around. And he looks straight at her and it's just very natural and he's got his little mannerisms and things like that. And I look, whether he does or he doesn't, it's a lovely thing for us to think that he can feel without knowing in his mind what it actually is. And I think that's the cool thing about babies, right? Like it's largely energetic and they mm. just either know or they don't. It's not intelligence as yet. And I think that he must have some, there has to be given the cellular exchange between Georgia and Jimmy. Like Jimmy's, bit of him's left here and a bit of Georgia's left in him somewhere, somehow through the whole process. And so I think that that's pretty epic to think when you think about it like that. And Is so, that the same, you share that same belief? Yeah, and I, I like to share that. So I like to think of that. I like to think yeah. that, you know, yeah. that he's got something from me. I don't know whether it's maybe he's very my, photogenic. He's, <laughs> <laughs> I am not. He is. <laughs> he got that from Mama G. Clearly you've thought about this and oh, yeah. discussed this. Yeah. What, what, what are you going to talk to him about and um, when? We just are talking about it now. So it, there won't be a well, – I'm hoping that there won't be a moment. It'll just always be the way that it is. Um, because I think that bombshell is too much for anyone to, there will be no right time. And so it's just going to be the fact of the matter. So there is a, I've got to get around to this, but there is a photograph that I'm going to put on his wall and it will be just a talking point that we just talk about all the From time. From the delivery? No, pregnant Georgia. It's right. a really cute photo. It's really pretty. It's really lovely. And I just want him to always know that he was in Georgia's tummy, but he came home to us. Um, and we worked really hard and tried really hard. Look, I, you know, physically I put myself through the ringer for two or three, two, two, two years straight. So I feel as though I put in a pretty big physical effort. So he will know that too, you know. But the main thing is, is that he will know how cool, like he just did this, like I said, this crazy tour of duty, um, you know, to get to, to get to be alive. So yeah, he's going to know. So it won't be a thing. It won't be a moment in time where we sit him down and go, so Jimmy, um, he's just going to always, always know. It's always part of his life. Yep. yep. Joe Scully and Georgia Barnes, <laughs> we cannot thank you enough because this story is, I mean, this, this, you, you can't hear this story and not have a smile yeah. on your face. It's just, it is the most beautiful gift. Yeah. And and to hear the way you speak about your journey, despite the challenges that you endured and continue, different emotions you continue to feel, we are so grateful. It's just beautiful. Thank you. And I hope that people hear this story and talk about surrogacy with more ease. Yeah. Because as we said, it's more common than people think. Yeah. Um, and there's lots of laws around it and processes and, and it needs to be an easier conversation. Yeah. So thank you both. Thanks so thank much you. for having us. Thank you. Thank you.
And to enjoy more parenting stories like this one, please like, follow, subscribe and share Dr. Golly and the Experts wherever you listen. For any information on my sleep programs and new book, head to drgolly.com.